What's going on? It's Chris Carino. This is the voice of the Nets. Thank you so much for checking in with us here. We're going to talk to Michael Pina, who covers the NBA for The Ringer, who wrote an article called The Nets Are Ready to Move Forward. It was a profile piece on Nick Claxton. That sparked our conversation. We'll talk about Nick. We'll talk about the Nets. We'll talk about NBA. He spent years covering the NBA for Sports Illustrated as well, and we'll we'll talk to him about that. Some of the features that he's done get to what makes him laugh, cry, think, and all that. A Boston guy now living in Brooklyn, Michael Pina of The Ringer, is coming up. We also do dive into, believe it or not, the Oscars, which we recorded this podcast with Michael Pina before the Nets left on a road trip, the week that led up to the Oscars. So... I wanted to tie an Academy Award theme to what we're seeing with the Nets right now before we get to Michael Pena. Because we, we talked about it in last week's podcast with Keith Ergo. I hope you, you listened in. Fordham's run, by the way, came to an end in the semifinal, losing to Dayton, but a great year for the Rams. But I talked about that game in Boston that the Nets won where they came back from 28 points down to beat the Celtics on the road. And what happened in that game that maybe could spark things, could get them going. And since we've done that, since we talked about that, we're rec- I'm recording this part of it right after the Nets beat the Denver Nuggets to win for the fifth time in their sixth game. And the only one they lost was a game in Milwaukee, which is in the middle of a, a three games and four day stretch on the road where they chose to, to sit some of their guys and still almost beat the Bucks with the end of their bench. That was the only blip in the five games out of a six-game swing that they won. The bookends, the Boston game, and this win against Denver. The win against Denver, which, as I record this, came yesterday on the road in the Mile High City. That was a best picture. That might have been their best game of the year, especially the third quarter. They put up 37 points. They held Denver under 20. It was just the best performance of the year, perhaps, especially that third quarter. They beat a Denver team that was was ready for them. I mean, a Denver team that had lost two games in a row. They were coming off a loss to the lowly Spurs. They're the best team in the West. Went into the game with a five-and-a-half game lead in the Western Conference. Nikola Jokic looks like he's going to win his third straight MVP. So they were looking for a win. They were looking to play better. Nets came back from 10 down in the third quarter to win the game and won the game despite a 30-point, 20-rebound, triple-double from Nikola Jokic. So I got to give that game the best picture award. The game on the other end that we talked about, Boston, well, I call that best screenplay. Came from 28 down, one by 10, biggest comeback in the NBA this year. And it had such great lines of dialogue that came out of that one, right? We had Cam Johnson talking about during the game, at one point when they were down 28, they just looked at each other and says, this ends here. And then they went and turned it around. Jacques Bond gave us the line after the game. He was talking about how they kind of scrapped some of their stuff and went back and kept it simple. He said, we just had to do simple better. And after the game, Spencer Dinwiddie talking to us on the radio, me and Capper, he said, late in the game, offensively, he goes, we went elephant hunting. It was a Hollywood script to win that game against Boston. And, you know, we're talking post-trade deadline here for the Nets with this new group. And the guy who has emerged as best actor 
actor in a leading role. A role we didn't know he could play. That's Mikkel Bridges. A key piece, perhaps, in the Kevin Durant deal. We knew he was an all-NBA defender. You know, runner-up for Defensive Player of the Year last year. Durable. Hadn't missed a game in his NBA career. Didn't know, though, that he could be box office gold, be a leading actor. The game in Minnesota the other night, where the Nets won an overtime, his sixth 30-point game as a net. Six 30-point games in a 10-game stretch that he had played as a net. He'd only scored 30 more in a game two other times in his NBA career. He gets the Academy Award for the leading actor. And now there are a lot of good nominees for supporting actor. But a guy that I'm going to go with, bit of a dark horse, Royce O'Neal. Said this since the trade. The new players have come in, and and a lot of them have great defensive reputations. And people looked at Royce O'Neal as maybe a guy that was going to get shoved in the back burner. That there are other guys coming in that kind of do the same things that he does. Royce O'Neal is a glue guy. A glue guy. He is a winning player. He does the little things that help you win games. And he did get a little overshadowed. And his minutes went down when the new guys arrived. I know I've been saying, that guy's got to play. I talked to Jacques Vaughn before the Denver game, and I brought up Royce O'Neal because he was coming off this great game against Minnesota where he matched a career high with 15 rebounds. At many times, he was guarding Rudy Gobert. He's got like eight inches on him. And Jacques Vaughn told me, he said, you know, we, we kind of did take Royce for granted a little bit, but we overused him early in the year. You know, maybe they were trying to make him a lead actor. He's more of a supporting guy. His minutes now are a little bit, they were playing like 40 minutes a game. He was up, up amongst the, the leaders in the league in minutes. Now he's around where he should be, around between 20 and 30 minutes a game. And there's other guys now that can be looked upon to be those lockdown perimeter defenders. He's a good perimeter defender. His strength, though, seems to be interior defense and low post play. And he can guard bigger players. We saw that against Gobert. And he was matched up a lot of times late in the game with Nikola Jokic. Claxton had gotten some foul trouble. And there's Royce O'Neal battling Nikola Jokic. Now, Jokic is going to destroy most guys in the league. But O'Neal made it difficult for him late in that game. He's capable of doing that. And here's the thing about Royce O'Neal. I don't even need to look at the stat sheet to know what kind of impact he's having on the game. I don't even care about his stats. And that's a good supporting actor. So that's our best supporting actor. And of course, the guy that's orchestrating it all. Best director. Jacques Vaughn. The game in Denver, right before the last play, he waited and then he puts Claxton in. They're inbounding right in front of him and he directs Claxton as to where to be. And as Tim Capstraw pointed out on, on radio so astutely, he put Claxton in there late, set him up at an angle where they're going to have to inbound the ball toward midcourt or they were going to have to throw it over Claxton and make it difficult to get Jokic the ball. And what ended up happening is Jokic had to come all the way out to the perimeter, all the way out to the sideline 
to get the pass. They had to loft it to him, which allowed O'Neal to come out on him, get in his chest, and make that shot tough for him. Jacques Vaughn has pressed all the right buttons all year long since taking over as head coach and deserves consideration as best director in the NBA. And boy, if he ever won an Academy Award, his speech would be unbelievable. And, you know, the the best picture always goes to the producer. And all the things we've talked about, the producer is Sean Marks and his staff. Think about the award winners there, the trade to get Bridges, making the move to Jacques Vaughn as your director, giving up a first-round pick to Utah to get your best supporting actor in Royce O'Neal. All that credit goes to the producer as well. All right, I think I've exhausted the Oscar analogy. So let's get on to the business at hand. A conversation with Michael Pina of The Ringer, right here on The Voice of the Nets. Michael, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh my goodness, Chris, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're, you're like a neighbor. You're in the, in the Barclays Center area, a Brooklynite, mm-hmm. but you're originally from Boston, though. Correct. I am. Yes. You're part of the, so now that you're at the ringer, I know Bill Simmons kind of like they call it the, the Boston mafia, right? That he brings <laughs> over to the ringer. Where was there any kind of a, do you ever see the movie diner? I have. I don't know if you ever, yes. Remember, remember, remember the guy makes his wife take the Baltimore Colts test <laughs> before he would marry her. Is there any kind of a Boston test that Bill Simmons gives you guys from Boston to make sure that you're, you're part of the mafia? You know, there isn't, um, at least not for me, but if there was, I would definitely pass it. Um, I'll just, I'm, bra- I'm bragging a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I know pretty much everything there is to know about Boston sports, and I'm pretty sure that would be the the gist of the exam. So yes. I, I think I would pass. I hope right, I would so pass. I'm, not, I'm not even going to bother testing you on uh, on Red Sox history or or Celtics history or anything like that. Um, I might not even might not even bring up the last Nets Celtics game uh, where the Nets came back from 28 down to win that game. It's been a rough week for the Celtics as we record this. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll stay away from that. Um, <laughs> let's talk more about uh, what prompted us to, to give you a call and want to talk about was the uh, the subject of Nick Claxton. I, and, and we'll use that into a foray here into our conversation here. Uh, you write for The Ringer. You cover the NBA. And it's a terrific piece that was entitled, The Nets Are Ready to Move Forward. And it was, uh, the focal point was about Nick Claxton. What, what did you walk away from most in that interview as far as uh, what you think about Nick Claxton? Yeah, I mean, obviously, super impressive um, young man, super impressive. I mean, what attracted to me or attracted him to me the most is just anytime someone is uh, a candidate, pseudo candidate for two major end of season awards. I think he's a candidate for defensive player of the year. I think he's a candidate for most improved player. He may yeah. not win either of them, but I think he deserves to be on a lot of ballots for both. So right there, he's alluring. You look at the age, you look at um, the general skill set that he has, um, the length, the athleticism. And what was really fascinating to me was just, obviously, he was this 
humongous part of um, what the Nets were earlier this season when they had KD and they had Kyrie Irving. And he's just this perfect complimentary piece. We do the interview um, at the Nets practice facility the day after the trade deadline. So uh, I'm sure he was still processing a lot of the change of Kyrie Irving is gone. He was traded a, a few days prior. And then um, Kevin Durant obviously is no longer there. And while we were doing the interview, you know, Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson are taking their photos, their official photos for the, with, for the NBA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's how fresh everything was. Um, and I just think that it's really interesting kind of zooming out and looking big picture at this player who, um, you know, you're going from uh, the quote unquote super team era that the Nets um, had for a few years and you're going towards um, building around pieces that, um, well, obviously a lot of them were acquired in this, in the trades, but Claxton was not. Claxton was drafted in the second round. Um, and when you can get a piece like that in the second round, 31st overall pick, I believe, yeah, it just says a lot about the front office. It says a lot about the health of the organization. And going forward, I think having him with the skill set that he has that is so critical in the modern NBA um, lets you do a lot of different things on offense and on defense. He's just a fascinating figure for this organization going forward. And he's got this combination of humility, but he has swagger too. He's got Mm -hmm. a little, you know, real self-confidence, but humility there, there's a, it's an interesting balance when you talk to him. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorite parts of the interview was when, you know, I asked him, what is something about your game that you're not satisfied with? You know, you're this most improved player candidate, but what's there's obviously something that you're unhappy with. And before I even finish the question, he's just like, my free throws. Yeah. And he goes into this long monologue about how difficult it has been for him ever since he went one for 11 in the final game of the previous season against the Celtics in the playoffs, how mentally difficult that was. And just his, you know, I asked him point blank, like, how does it feel to get intentionally fouled? That must not feel great. And he said, it used to bother me, but now when I walk to the free throw line, it's just a free throw. Like the world is not going Hmm. to end if I miss this shot. And you look at his, his, you know, small sample, but, you know, he's 51%, I believe, on the season. But since February 1st, I think he's 67% or something like that. So whatever he's doing mentally, whatever he's doing, I know he's switched up his routine a couple times, but he seems to be more comfortable when he steps to the line. And that's obviously critical for anyone who wants to play big minutes, especially on a team that I would think will be in the playoffs this year. And then going forward, as they gel, as they coalesce, as they add more talented pieces, will be in the playoffs for the foreseeable future, just with what they have going on and the assets that they have. And to be on the court in the fourth quarter, you got to make your free throws. And that's such an underrated part of the NBA game, because especially now where your ability to get whistles is Mm -hmm. much easier, especially late in the game, um, to be able to make the free throws. I remember when Kevin Durant was here, he'd be like, they're free. Like, you got to go make them, they're free. (laughs) Uh, And he would shoot them at such a high rate. But a couple of things, when when it comes to free throw shooting that that Nick um, has impressed me with, and I, and I, you know, you see, a, you see a ton of bad free throw shooters in the NBA, but all I want to see is 
You want to see them work at it, and you also don't want it to deter their aggressiveness. And I think Nick Claxton has never let it deter his aggressiveness. He could go up there and miss 10 free throws, but he will play as hard and will attack the rim with force and not be afraid to go to the line. That's always something that you want to see. And the other thing is to to somehow, you know, the work on it part is change the routine up. Like, the, the, you know, that, that definition of insanity, right? Keep doing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen over history, guys that are bad free throw shooters, they just, they think it's just all mental. And yes, it may be. But what Nick did this year, he changed his routine. You know, in trying to get better, he went to this, deliberate routine, something that he could replicate over and over again. And he would bend the knees and he would come up and he would stop and he would put the ball up on his left hand and he would let it stay there for a little bit. And now he's starting to speed it up a little bit, but at least he, he changed something at least to try and make him be able to replicate his motion. And I, I just, there's so many guys that over the years have been bad free throw shooters that you don't even see them try I mean, yeah, they, all right, I'll go shoot 200 in the gym today. But unless you do something different at the line during a game, it's not going to change. Yeah, I think that for a lot of NBA players, it's a pride thing, right? Like, I'm in the NBA. I'm one of the 450 best basketball players in the world. I don't need to work on something. I'm I'm (laughs) impenetrable. I'm invincible. And to have the humility, a lot of, even the best players, there's a lot of players who are the greatest players who've ever played who have humility. I think it is an integral quality. Uh, Nick Claxton certainly has humility. Um, You can tell in his work ethic, you can tell in how he plays the game. And going back to what you said, which was spot on about um, he doesn't shy away from contact and he's extremely aggressive attacking the basket. Uh, You know, when I asked Doc Rivers, for this story about what stands out to him about Nick Claxton this season. He said he's got to work on the free throw shooting, but it'll come. And what I love is that he's not afraid to go to the free throw line and he will improve eventually because he clearly has that type of attitude towards getting better and improving. So I thought that that was a really interesting answer. And in the game, talk about Doc Rivers in Philadelphia and talk about Nick's swagger. Yeah, He blocks Joel Embiid and then gets an alley-oop dunk on the other end. And then he was pointing to the six. He was at the six, at the sixer bench, pointing to the six on his jersey, meaning Bill Russell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ended up getting, I think, a technical, like him and Niang were going at it. it, it uh, like that's that's kind of Nick right there. You know, he's got that humility, he, but he's got that game, and he's not afraid to let you know about it. He did it to Brooke Lopez the other day, too. He got in his face a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, his his footwork is so good, too. And I think we, you know, we, we hear about that not just on the defensive end, where his footwork makes him able to cover guards uh, and switch everything. But also now you're seeing when he gets it in the high post, he's not a threat. To, it's amazing because most guys have to be a little bit of a threat to shoot it before you'll they'll be able to make that spin move or get down to the rim on you. Nick's an amazing guy in the fact that, you know, he's not, He's not Shaq. He's not just going to back you down and muscle you to the rim or Embiid. He he won't shoot it from more than eight feet away. And yet he's still able to get the ball in the high post and go to the rim. Yeah, the way he put it 
And I can't remember if it was a quote in the story or just how I paraphrased it, but he eats space, catches the ball at the elbow. There's space between him and his man who is sagging off and he eats the space. He gets the contact and he finishes through it or he draws the foul. Um, You even see on these attacks, on these uh, line drives to the basket, like to your point about the footwork, he's got the Euro step down, which is just like you, six eleven seven footers who can move yeah. like that, who are that agile are extremely rare. Um, he's got the feel with the ball. You know, I talked about it in the story uh, with the, the DHO, the dribble handoff keepers where he'll fake, keep the ball spin towards the basket. Um, that's a really tricky thing to master. It's particularly difficult when you have brand new teammates and you've seen him struggle a little bit since the trade deadline with that action, but that'll come. And when it does, it just makes this offense so much more difficult to stop because they, they, they always have shooting. They still have great shooters on the team yeah. and you have to worry about the shooters, but oh, I think by you the gave way, the stat. Didn't you give the stat that he led the league in the fake handoffs? He's... Fourth, I believe. Fourth, okay. Um, in yeah. total, yeah, which shocked him. He was like, I have, I just started doing it 20 games ago. I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> you're right up there. Um, so he's just really tremendous at it. And it's just one of those things where he's, I just keep going back to improvement. The fact that he wasn't doing this um, three months ago, four months ago or whatever, at the beginning of the season, November, he's not doing this. Yeah. Lately he is, and it's been terrific. I, I think sometimes the most improved player, you don't really have to get that um, couple of years of groundswell of people talking about it before you get it. Obviously, it's the most improved thing. It kind of is somebody that kind of comes out of nowhere, jumps to another level. And so it's a it's it's probably the out of all the awards, I think it's it's the most like um, I'd say not genuine, but immediate. You know, all of a sudden, like, ooh, this guy just sprung the life here. Very rarely is a guy going to win MVP when he hasn't been in the conversation for a couple of years. You know, very rarely is a guy going to be. That's why I thought the defensive player of the year stuff, it was interesting because he brought it up early in the mm-hmm. year. He kind of threw it out there. And I and I and when I heard the quote, I thought, oh, maybe it was the reporter and we had a context. He was just kind of repeating the question. No, he he actually said, you know, I think I should get some consideration for defensive player of the year. And you know, I'm an old school guy. I'm kind of like toot your own horn kind of thing. But mm-hmm. I know the times we live in. And sometimes you got to do it for yourself. And a award like that, sometimes you got to be in the conversation a little bit before people actually end up considering you for something like that. Well, that was a yes. brilliant move by Nick. It was. <laughs> for, I, just, you know, watching from afar before I even, you know, had this idea, the germination of this idea for a story. Um, he wasn't really on my radar for defensive player of the year. And I mean, when the beginning of the season, the Nets defense was not good at all. So no one on that team was getting any consideration for an award. Um, but he's been so tremendous, so invaluable all year long on that end, an unsung hero, if you will. And just all the different ways he impacts that side of the ball be it the rim protection, the fact that he leads the NBA in total blocks. I don't know where he is in blocks per game right now because Jaron Jackson Jr. is kind of shut up with the minutes that he's played, but I think he might yeah. be second or third still, just like yeah. 2.6, I want to say, blocks per game off the top of my head, which is just incredible stuff. Yeah. But it's even more than that. It's, uh, you know, obviously the versatility, the switching on to just about anyone in the league, being able to keep them at bay. Not a lot of bigs can do that. 
Um, Eric Spolster compared him to Bam Adebayo, who was a preseason favorite in a lot of people's eyes for Defensive Player of the Year. I think they're probably the two best switch bigs, I would say, in the NBA this season. And you can just you know look at the the data. Jock Vaughn trusts Nick Claxton to switch every single time they're yeah. defending a pick and roll almost. So he's been tremendous in that area. And you have to be, I think, or it increases your value tenfold if you are a big man who can switch out on the perimeter. And we know the difference between the regular season and the postseason. You can get played off the floor defensively um, if you're one-dimensional. And so for him to be able to do that is great. And then not even blocking shots, but in the paint, um, just, you know, Second Spectrum is this uh, resource that I use for the story. And, you know, they track the field goal percentages the opposing shooters have. Um, based on who is the nearest, the closest defender when you let go of the ball. And uh, Nick Claxton boasted the lowest opposing field goal percentage on all shots um, among, I think the minimum was like 500 shots defended or something like that. So there's like well over 100 players who qualify and he was the best. I think the second best was Draymond Green, who everyone knows is just this tremendous defensive player, yeah. defensive player of the year. So Claxton's case is really strong, I think. I don't know if he will win it. Probably not because it's going to be tough. There's because some Because sometimes you got to, again, you got to be in the conversation for a year or two. You know, like people right. don't go, oh, you just, he just got on the radar. He can't be the guy already. And then you start watching him and you go, the other thing, you know, you talk about Bam Adebayo. I think that's kind of where the Nets sort of projected him. And, and it's and it's sometimes hard. You don't, um, people like to make comparisons. Like if I asked you for a comp on a guy, a lot of times you, you look for a guy that's visually similar. Mm-hmm. And Bam isn't sort of visually similar to Nick Claxton, but that ability to switch. And what's impressive about both of them is they can rebound and protect the rim even in a switching defense, because a lot of times they're out on the perimeter now guarding smaller players, and yet they can still, they're able to get back to the rim to help and get back to rebound. I mean, that's the most impressive stuff for me. That's, that was what I remember, you know, Claxton sometimes reminds me of what Anthony Davis used to do when he first got into the league. I mean, you'd see that guy in a switch go out and protect, uh, go out and contest a three mm-hmm. and then get the rebound. Or block the guy trying to get a putback. You know, that ability to cover like 30 feet is, I think, what is impressive about guys like Claxton out of bio and make them defensive player of your candidates. Yeah, absolutely. I think that just covering that much space, covering that much area is critical. And even if you watch, the, I mean, the comparison now between... I know we're not, this isn't a Bam Adebayo podcast, but Bam switched last year more than anybody. This year, his switch numbers are significantly down. And a huge reason why is because they got killed on the glass when he would switch out. And so they had to make an adjustment. And for Claxton, I mean, the Nets aren't the best defensive rebounding team in the NBA, but Claxton does get back, does make those, those key rebounds in a lot of spots. And not a lot of people can do that. So it's, it's just really impressive. Well, and also, the, I think the Nets' defensive rebounding numbers will go up now with the new group, you know, over right. the course of a season. Because I think even, you know, guys like Bridges and, and Cam Johnson and um, Finney Smith are, are they're known quantities defensively, but it's going to help them in the rebounding department as well. And, uh, and as another thing, too, is that people didn't realize, I think, 
when the trades happened, now you had a starting lineup. You have Claxton with four new guys. It was almost, you know, and and they're, they're, they're two duos who had already played with each other. So Claxton was really the one guy. I mean, he didn't spend that much time with Dinwiddie probably on the same floor when Dinwiddie was a net the first right. time. But it was like, I almost think it was the biggest adjustment for Nick Claxton with that group. And he struggled, you know, he, his instincts kind of, he, he slowed down a little bit until recently, I think, started to kind of get used to playing with those guys. Yeah, that's 100% correct. I think that also uh, the trade, I mean, for any big who isn't um, a play creator or a playmaker, has the ball in his hands a ton, when you're playing off of two super duper stars who draw so much attention that was, um, you know, Claxton benefited as any player would. And now the role is just kind of subtly shifting and the attention is shifting also. And, you know, uh, it's really interesting that Jacques Vaughn from the jump just decided to have Claxton be the, the five man, but then everybody else is just a new player on the team. And, that starting five has been, I mean, one of the, the funny things that Claxton said to me the day after the trade deadline is just like, we're going to have, we have the potential to have, I'm paraphrasing, the best defense in the NBA from this point going up, going forward. You look at the talent that they brought, they brought in on that side of the ball and the starting five is allowing 97.4 points per 100 possessions, which is just like Insane. 10 points better than <laughs> the best defense in the NBA. So he was spot on there and it, it shouldn't surprise anyone because he's amazing. Mikhail Bridges was second for defensive player of the year last year. Cam Johnson is amazing defender. Um, and uh, Dorian Finney-Smith is one of the better, more versatile wing guys in the league. So, and Spencer Dinwiddie has size at his position. So yeah. it's it's a really interesting group. And everything takes time um, in the league when it comes to playing with new teammates, particularly when there's four new teammates who you're spending a majority of your minutes with. Yeah, and then, and then you throw in a guy like Royce O'Neal, who had been starting... Um, who's also a, a plus defender by all the mm -hmm. metrics as well. So um, the question is going to be, can they score enough? And, and you, you watch, you know, you watch every game, and you're you're glued into all these all these games, and, and you cover the NBA so well for the Ringer. Um, how do you how do you see them as far as being able to score with that group? Do you think do you buy Bridges as a as a go to? offensive player could they actually um be a tough out for somebody in the first round of the playoffs i think it's i mean it's a really good question when i look at the team what they need more than anything is more ball handling more playmaking um spencer didn't spencer dinwiddie was kind of like probably the third ball handler on a Dallas Mavericks team that went to the Western Conference Finals last year, and now he is kind of the primary playmaker on this team. And maybe that's a role that is not the best for him on a, a very good, very competitive playoff team. Very good player having a very good year, but a little overtaxed in what he, what he needs to do in terms of get, getting everyone else involved. I, Mikael Bridges, I mean, I don't want to say he's been a revelation because... Uh, I remember talking to him at Summer League when he was just drafted, doing a story about him. And one of my first questions was about, you know, coming into the league as 
probably the best three and D prospect out of Villanova, out of, out of college where he played at Villanova. And he said, yeah, that's wonderful. But like, I have so much more to my game. I want to be Paul George. I want to be Kawhi Leonard. And mm-hmm. he went to a team where that just wasn't in the cards. You're playing with Chris Paul. You're never going to have the ball in your hands. You're playing with Devin Booker. Not a lot of shots with you independently creating them. So what we're seeing now is, I mean, I, I don't know. He's not Paul George yet, <laughs> for yeah. sure. But super impressive stuff. I mean, the way he's scoring off the bounce, the playmaking needs to come. I think it will when you have an offseason where you know what your new role is going to be, where I need to set up guys too. And I'm going to get way more attention also from defenses that, I didn't get in Phoenix because I was the third or fourth option. So I think he's just a super special talent. Obviously one of the better spot-up shooters, better movement shooters in the league. They're going to have the shooting. Um, they're going to have the defense. Offensively for right now in the playoffs, it's going to be tough for them, honestly, I think, to, to, to generate enough points, particularly if you're going up against... I don't know, uh, the Celtics or the Bucks or the Sixers. Like, it's just, it's going to be tough yeah. against those defenses. Um, but you add another could, playmaker in and yeah. it, things could get really interesting next season. Yeah. They, they just, they're just going to have to play games in the 90s, you know, like the, sure. <laughs> in, like the 1990s, basically, uh, and go out and win games. I, yeah. Well, it's, it, it's fascinating to see, you know, what will happen. The thing I, just to, to talk, finish up on Bridges, is that what I've liked about, some of these high-scoring games that he's had, he had a 45-point game, he had a 38-point game. He'll, he'll do it, but he doesn't dominate the play. You, you look up and you go, well, wow, he didn't take a lot of shots to do it, and he doesn't hold on to the ball. You know, so he's not, he's not getting it and, and taking a bunch of dribbles, and he, you know, he's either shooting it, moving it, passing it, and, you know, going to the rim. It's just, I think that's where you say, all right, a guy, he, he, can, he maybe has a higher ceiling than we thought you know, going forward. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, you look at his usage, which jumped like eight points from where he was in uh, in Phoenix to, to Brooklyn. And he's actually turning the ball over less despite having more responsibility, which is like a really, really good sign. Yeah, It's only a nine-game sample size, but it's a really good sign um, for him. And kind of as he develops his playmaking chops going forward, that's something taking care of the ball is obviously critical. Yeah, and uh, and the team has their their turnover numbers have been down as of late. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to finish up, this the Nets. Cam Johnson is another guy that uh, he struggled with a shot early on when he when he came in, but um, really an intriguing player and and a, a guy that I think has been as under the radar over the years. Maybe it is because he's overshadowed with some of the star players there in Phoenix, just like Mikel Bridges. Uh, but between his size, his shooting ability, his fearlessness, his defensive ability, I, I didn't, I knew he was a great player until I started watching him every, uh, re, you know, potentially great player. But until I watch him every day, realize both sides of the floor, Cam Johnson's a real good player too. Oh, and he brought it when they went to the finals, he was like yeah. integral. Like he brought it on both ends. That really, I mean, he was, you know, he gets drafted, I think, 11th overall, and he's pretty old coming out of UNC. People were really confused by how high he was selected. But, like, all that doesn't matter when you're in the Western Conference Finals and you're shooting, like, 68% from the floor, and then you go to the finals and you're making every single pull-up jumper, as he did. So, dunking on people also. Um, 
So, I mean, he's great. I, I was personally, like, I know Kevin Durant is Kevin Durant. I was, like, kind of stunned, to be honest with you, that the Suns let Bridges and Cam Johnson go. Like, those are two... Mm. This is the NBA where, like, wings of that size who play on both sides of the ball are the most valuable commodity beyond, you know, the top five player. So to lose two of them, I thought was... I mean, we'll see what happens with them in the playoffs, not having those guys. But, um, but yeah, like just really valuable pieces going forward for the Nets, I think. And uh, Cam Johnson's shot will absolutely come around. Like he's one of the better three-point shooters in the world. He'll be fine. Michael, let's talk about you as a as a uh, a basketball guy living in Brooklyn from Boston, working for the Ringer. You were previously with SI, and you know you can read you. You can go on and find all your old podcasts of the NBA. Um, <laughs> where did it all start for you? I mean, people know you. Uh, you're you're known. And NBA fans know you. How did how did it all start for you? Uh, I don't want to just have the subscriber numbers plummet from this podcast. So I won't, <laughs> you know, go way back and just tell the whole story. Hey, listen, but... everybody's looking for a good origin story. Everybody <laughs> wants to know a good origin story, especially if they read your stuff, they hear you, they go, how do I do that? I mean, look, I'll say like, this is all I ever really wanted to do. So there was never a plan B for me. It was always, um, Loved writing and I loved NBA basketball, those two things. And so it was just taking every single opportunity that I could coming up and was fortunate enough to, I started my own blog, wrote in it every single day while I was doing actual, actual jobs, other jobs out of college and just grinding away at that. Every time I wrote something that I was proud of, or even when I wasn't proud of it, I would email it to uh, an editor at ESPN or an editor here and there until everything just kind of snowballed where my work started to get attention and then um, start. I worked at Bleacher Report and uh, that's not covering the Lakers when I lived in Los Angeles and got to cover Kobe Bryant's last season and his last game, which was a tremendous experience. And then from there, uh, you just meet people along the way. And this business, so much of this business is networking connections and working hard and did all that and just kind of parlayed it into eventually uh, Gig at Sports Illustrated. There were a lot of lot of stuff in between, but eventually Gig at Sports Illustrated, and then here I am today at The Ringer. So it's been a lot of fun. I mean, a Gig at Sports Illustrated is like not something you just stumble into. Like it just, you know, and eventually you make your own luck there and it works out somehow. What was the biggest swing you took? Like, what was the thing? Because I, 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 I saw, I do stalk you, on social media or anyone that I'm going to interview, I make sure I go through their, their Instagram, their Twitter, you know, just see what's, what's going on. And you, and you put, you put a picture up the other day on Instagram of a book, all this could be different. So was there a big swing somewhere that you took where if you hadn't taken it, maybe all this could be different? What a question. Um, I don't know. I mean, like I said at the top, like doing this, was all I ever foresaw for myself. So 
every decision that I made, and I was very fortunate enough to have you know supportive parents and um, a wife who who was my girlfriend for years and years and years, who incredibly supportive in understanding that even when there were hiccups along the way, and there were there were plenty of them, um, I wasn't going to quit. This was just kind of it for me. Like making this happen was my priority, my plan A, plan B, plan C, and so on. So uh, like I had a lot of fortunate breaks for sure in terms of um, maybe opportunities to write certain stories. Uh, there was one piece when I, I was working at Vice and um, for Vice Sports and I was fascinated by LaMarcus Aldridge I'd never read anything. There were no profiles about LaMarcus Aldridge, yet he was an all-star um, and multiple time all-star, but he was an all-star this year in the Spurs. And I went to all, I reached out to his agency and they hit me like, requesting an interview and they hit me back saying, um, yeah, you know, he never accepts interviews, but he'll sit down with you for 45 minutes in <laughs> LA. So I was like, oh, okay. Went there, did the interview, wrote a story that I'm very proud of to this day. And like the connection that I made with that agency then kind of spilled over into other opportunities with their client list and mm. things just kind of tumble from there. So whenever something came forward for me that was an opportunity, like I just tried to do my best and I think I did an okay yeah. job in a lot of these spots. And well, um, Why do you think LaMarcus Aldridge took that interview request? I don't know to this day, to be honest <laughs> with you. I would love to ask him. <laughs> I know he was in Brooklyn for a spell. Yeah, he didn't um, talk much there either. Yeah, exactly. So I, I loved my interview with him. I loved he opened up about pretty much everything that I was um, wanting to talk about. And this was when he was with the Spurs and there were rumors about, you know, he requested a trade, all of that. So it was just a, it was a great experience for me and um, just really fun connect. I just love connecting with NBA players when I have an opportunity, like going back, just even this Nick Claxton story, um, just sitting down and talking to guys one-on-one -on -one is just so different than even catching them in a locker room or a pre or post game scrum. I just, I, I love sitting down and actually chatting. And one of the things that I really enjoyed with the, the Claxton story was um, I had my laptop with me. And honestly, right before he walked into the room, I was watching film of him just because I wanted to just kind of refresh my, my memory and my brain of some stuff I wanted to talk to him about. And I had the clips up. And when he walked in the room, I was like, hey, can I just show you these? And it just added a new layer to the interview, I feel like. Yeah. So that was just kind of very serendipitous. And he was he was fantastic breaking everything down. So that was just it's really fun, enjoyable time. What was the aside from Nick, is there another one that stands out of guy that you had a chance to spend some time with that was uh that was really rewarding and interesting? Yeah, I this was a long time ago, but I got to travel to Malibu, spend a few days with Jimmy Butler, the off season that he went from the Chicago Bulls to the Minnesota Timberwolves, hmm. and sat down with him. Uh, it's Jimmy Butler, and we we're sitting alone in his private um, movie theater. And I remember he has like a popcorn machine. 
And it was just me and him. There were no publicists, no PR people for like an hour. And he's just answering everything. Tibbs called him at one point. <laughs> I think this made the story. Tibbs called him and he looked at the phone. He answered the phone. And he's like, I can't talk. I'm talking to Michael Pena right now. I was just like, this is truly <laughs> bizarre stuff. But that was really great. Um, the other one, real quick, uh, I did a story for GQ. Uh um, uh, I want to say like two years ago, maybe where they sent me to Minnesota and I got to, um, hang out with Kevin Garnett at his home in Minnesota. Mm. And that was, uh, I, I mean, I grew up, uh, a humongous Celtics fan. So Kevin Garnett means a lot to me personally. And then having to, first of all, having an opportunity to spend a lot of time with him and seeing that he is pretty much exactly the same as you <laughs> He's exactly what you would think he is in yeah. private, which was amazing. Um, Did he take you out to was, the soccer field out in the in the yard and stuff? You know, he had like he has like regulation soccer fields in his yard. He, yeah, it was huge. It was yeah. like humongous. He had the nets up exactly. Yeah, yeah. and he's just um, so that was that was a. Uh, that was like a, a story that I just, pers- for me personally, I don't know if I'll ever like top that in terms of, um, I mean, my preparation for that one, my my nerves, everything was like on 10 because it's it's like KG. This is one of the, in my opinion, one of the, you know, 15 best players in the history of the sport. One of the most important people in the history of the NBA for so many different reasons. And to be able to, observe him, be around him, see his home, get a tour of his home, talk to him, talk about basketball with him, talk about his life. Like that's just an unforgettable experience. He he was one of the great characters that came through the nets and, you know, we got mm-hmm. him there toward the end. And, uh, we actually went, we, we were, he was with the team. We went to London in, uh, 2014 and he's a huge, uh, premier league guy. Like he loves Chelsea. So, when the team went there, he or had organized a uh, a trip out to uh, to Chelsea. So they went a bunch of the staff and and KG uh, went. We're out on the pitch. We're in the locker room. Met some of the players. They had the uh, the jersey on. Everything. My little my son was little, and he was a Chelsea fan. And I had him on the trip with me. And I had to go do like an event at you know, Barclays Bank or something like that. And and KG took my son along with the group to go visit. Uh, the Chelsea facility. So it was really cool. That's awesome. He's a genuinely a a really nice man. He really is. It's really funny that you say that because there's a, there was a photo shoot as GQ There's a photo shoot in his living room. And uh, (laughs) there was the photographer had his son there Hmm. and the son, I'll never forget this. The son was wearing, it was either Barcelona or Man U or uh, not a Chelsea Jersey. And uh, KG made him leave the room for the photo shoot. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, and so hey, that's yeah, another you know, part of being in, in part of the media and um, is getting to know some of these guys on a personal level. Uh, and just, you know, because we, we tend to, with the analytics and social media, you tend to treat these guys like video game players, but they're people behind these things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you pointed out and it was great about the story on Claxton is you you gave a nice balance between um, the stats and the games you watch and the plays and the st- strategy, but also the person. 
And, you know, people play this game. And that's why, that's why it's such a, it's so hard to predict a lot of times. And that's what makes it so good is that, yes, it's a, it's a game where there's a final score and there's one champ at the end of the year every year. And it's not always the best teams. It's not always the best. You know, that's why these, these super team things, it's not always a lock. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely not. I mean, look, there's like so many different things that have happened in the NBA that have been, that have garnered more attention in recent time. I mean, I did a story about just like uh, uh, mental health as this, I guess, like epidemic throughout the NBA, throughout um, society. And, f- and it's just obviously society. the NBA is going to be a, a subset of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it just impacts players, the stress level, the anxiety, all that stuff is just so real. And um, you talk to, or I talk to uh, a number of therapists and people who work for teams, people who work with NBA players uh, for that story. It was very eye-opening for me personally. Um, I did a magazine story last season, published almost a year ago to the date, about Ja Morant. Um, mm. and you look at what, what he's going through right now, it's very, very troubling and I hope he gets help, but it's just, you're right. These are people, they have their personal lives. They have their demons that they need to overcome. And, um, it's really difficult. I, I wrote another story a couple years ago about Carl Anthony Towns, who obviously lost his mother to COVID-19 and, uh, just having a you know, that was one of the hardest interviews I've ever done where he had not really opened up about the loss of his mother in detail in a one-on-one conversation and multiple times throughout. He's just like, I don't really have even have the words to express my grief still. Mm-hmm. So really, you just don't know what people, these players, players who are people are going through on a night to night basis. And just there's a lot of pressure to obviously perform. And um, yeah, it's just it's a. Just a fascinating kind of ecosystem, I would say. So when you put up the uh, the post about all this could be different, there was no subliminal messaging there or there was any kind of thing you were trying to tell us? It was just a good book? No, every time I read a book, I post it on Instagram. Okay. Um, during the season, I I can't really focus, so there's not a lot that are posted, unfortunately. But... When I get one down, I like to to throw it up there. Um, I, I consider myself an avid reader, even though I just doubted myself as someone who can't read during the season, which is like ten months of the year. So uh, that's something I'm trying to come to. Terms you know what with. though? I, I uh, I'm the same way because during the season, it's just a constant. You know, I it's funny because I don't get to focus in on a lot the the league broadly because you're mm-hmm. so locked in every night to the Nets. And, and so I, I really get into the, I see the Nets every single possession, but, uh, and I see the teams they play. So, you know, for instance, getting ready to do the Nets and the Rockets and we hadn't played the Rockets yet this year. And I'm going, wow, I haven't watched one Rocket game this year. Uh, because you're so, you're either, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's a bad example. I haven't really watched a lot of the Denver Nuggets either. They're on this trip and I've got, I haven't seen them yet in person this year. So you kind of, when you start to prepare for the team, then you really start to lock in You maybe watch a game or two. Um, but you're either traveling or playing. So it's hard. Uh, I would imagine your, your line of work, you're watching multiple games every night. 
is there any chance to have a life during the basketball season? <laughs> what, what do you do to even consider having a life? Or are you completely content to just be watching every single NBA game every night? No, there's there's too much to be honest, and I've I've come to peace with that. So I have my little system, my watching system. I watch a lot. I watch probably two games a night, and then I watch. I wake up and I watch one the following morning, and that one's really great because I can fast forward through the free throws, the timeouts, the commercials. So that one isn't that bad. Yeah. Um, but I also try to take like copious notes when I'm watching. So it's a lot of pausing, a lot of rewinding. The game yeah. is so fast. I don't really have a social life, to be honest with you, and I haven't <laughs> for like a decade. But uh, I just You gotta give had, some things up. I mean, you can't yeah, have it no, all. No, exa- exactly. And that's fine with me because I, I love the NBA. I love, wa- I love watching. I love thinking and interrogating the league. Uh, everything's changing constantly. But no, even I... My wife and I had our first uh, child in July. and Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, Boy, you know, Boy, his name is Wesley. All right. But he, you know, I thought he would kind of, quote unquote, interfere, which is a terrible word to use in this context, <laughs> with watching games. And he hasn't. He just kind of sits there and he watches along with me. Um, That's great. Which is which is terrific. And uh, once he starts moving, though, it might change. Once he starts really getting, literally, on the everyone go, is telling me, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that'll, that'll be. He's at a great age right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They can't really um, do much. They got a little personality, but he'll be he'll be doing pick and rolls around the living room while you're watching games pretty soon. Yeah, so I'm not looking forward to that. I think that's when things that's going to be the game changer right there. But right now, it's yeah, it's a lot of focus on the league, and um, right now is the stretch run, which is. You know, you don't have to, normally you don't have to keep as close an eye because things are a little more settled and then you can prep for the playoffs. This year is just a total free-for-all. I have no idea what's going to happen. You've got your favorites, but uh, very unpredictable season. I think it's great. I I think it's great not not thinking, all right, well, it's only going to be between these two teams and we just got to see how it gets there. But I, I, yeah, you're, it's wide open right now. And mm-hmm. I think that makes it so much fun. I'm looking so much forward to the playoffs this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think that the Nets are going to make it, which is really cool given the season that they've had and obviously the trades that they've made. And I think it's matchup dependent, as I said earlier, but like if they catch the right team, who knows, honestly, because there's not going to be a lot of tape on them. They can defend which means you can play on the road, you can space the floor, you can be versatile on both ends. So it's just really fun. Even just talking about a team that supposedly like reset the reset button and it's like, well, actually they can make the play, are going to make the playoffs this year and then they'll be competitive there. So it's it's really fun. Not a lot of ch- time to figure out how it all works, but the good thing was they had a little, they had a nice record, you know, they had a nice cushion going yeah. in. So, yeah, so I was going to say, like, we're not going to ask you to break down the Oscars because I'm sure that there just isn't enough time for you to get in all the Oscar-nominated films. Oh, I could. In between game films. I could. Can you? you, Is that that a strength of yours? I've seen, I want to say I've seen, how many, uh, are there 10, 9, 10 films? I think there's 10, yeah. 
I've probably seen six or seven of them, I want to right. say. See, you guys at the ringer have to be very well-versed on a lot of things, <laughs> right? Exactly. The, the captain there, Bill, he's he knows it all. He's on top of it all, right? So you got to kind of, maybe you got to do the crossover pods, right? Maybe you do a rewatchables. Well, hopefully, point. hopefully I get the invite someday. Um, all right, so do you have a, do you have an, I said the, the Oscars are coming up on Sunday. Do you have a, do you have a best picture favorite or a best actor or something you want to throw out there? Well, the movie that I'm, I want to rewatch before, um, my, my wife hasn't seen it, so I'm probably going to drag her into it, is I love Tar. I love that movie. You Saw did. it in theaters. Incredible stuff. Unbelievable acting. Um, just a thought-provoking film. Yeah. And I, like I said, I need to see it again, but it was like a mix of, I mean, it had like horror. I'm a huge horror movie fan too. So it had like horror elements. It had social commentary. Kate um, Blanchett is obviously brilliant. It's she a great was. Movie. She was. She was incredible in it. You actually, it, it felt like she'd been a composer, or, or uh, you know, for twenty years or whatever it was. The way she did it, I, I just felt it was a little tough to get through. Like sure. it's, a, it's a hard movie. <laughs> yeah. Like at one point I'm thinking I've been watching it for like an hour and a half and it was like 40 minutes in and I'm like, Oh <laughs> wow. I got another two hours left of this. Wait, no, but, but no, I did, I did appreciate it. And, and we should say we're taping this because the, the Oscars are coming up on Sunday as we tape this before this is going to come out actually a couple of days afterward. Um, I was particularly taken back by the whale. I don't know if you saw that. It didn't get, I have not seen, it didn't get nominated for best picture, but I thought Brendan Fraser was as good. It's as good as performance as you'll ever see in any film. It's unbelievable. I got to see that one. Can I make an Oscars prediction or is Absolutely. that silly because this is coming out? We won't edit it. It's going to come out live on the day, the day after the Oscars, two days after the Oscars, but go ahead. Okay. Everything, everywhere, all at once is going to sweep everything. That's my prediction. It's going to win yeah. all the awards. It's going to win. That's my love that movie. Tremendous stuff. Uh, I just feel, I felt wonderful watching it in the theater. Brought a tear to my yes. eye. Um, I, I hope it wins. I'm rooting for it. And I love that movie. Yes. Yeah, so I that's my it. prediction. I, I think it's going to win a lot of stuff. Everything, everywhere, all at once will sweep everything, according to Michael Pina. Um, <laughs> that, you know, that's a great, it's a great segue into wrapping up here because I always, um, it, that movie was one that would make you laugh, cry, and think. Mm -hmm. It does it all, right? It's got the trio. So every time I wrap this up, I refer to the Jim Balbano speech, the never give up speech at the ESPYs, which has always meant a lot to me in my life. Um, and he said to do, to have a full life, everyone should do these three things every day. They should laugh, they should cry, and they should think. Um, so I, I like to end all my subjects, put you under the gun, Michael Pino. What makes you laugh? Um, my son. He's the funniest person I've ever met. <laughs> Just, I say this all, I say this every day. I, I I tell my wife this every single day. He's He cracks me up with... <laughs> And Everything can't even he does. Talk yet. No, can't talk. <laughs> well, he started to say, uh, he started mama. And I'm just, I sit in front of him and I, you know, I say dada, dada, dada. <laughs> and he looks at me, he smiles and he just says mama. Like, and I just, I can't, I lose it. I break <laughs> and I, 
I, I, I think he's trolling me. I think he's a little baby genius, a little emotionally manipulative, and he's hilarious. I thought maybe since he watches so much uh, NBA with you, he's like yelling switch or something. At the, the, that's Not his yet. first word. Soon. Soon. Uh, I knew my son was going to be a huge basketball fan. when I used, to, I used to wheel him around the neighborhood in his stroller, and he, he would point to uh, hoops and driveways and just go, ball, ball. That's, oh, that's I great. I knew he was going to be a big hoops guy. Um, the 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 cry part of it not only not necessarily like a sad thing, but what moves you emotionally? Is there something that you could point out besides Kate Blanchett's performance in Tar? <laughs> what was it? What else is it that maybe moves you and feels your emotions? Um, it's a really good question. I mean, I'll say. I'll say like last year I covered the finals and I stayed with my parents because um, they, they live right outside Boston. So I stayed with them for the conference finals and the finals. And throughout that whole run, it was just, I was emotional multiple times because like I was covering, I just kept thinking back to my childhood watching the Celtics with my dad and, now I was going to these games and coming home from them and then getting to talk about these huge games with him in person. And I was someone who was like in the locker rooms and um, just like I had a sense of, I've felt really comfortable about um, who I am in this business for a while, but like that felt like uh, still totally surreal to me and, um, really meant a lot. And I would regularly get, not like regularly get choked up, but like regularly be aware of how fortunate yeah. I am and um, just how special that time was, even though the Celtics lost and couldn't close it out. And, and, uh, and I really thought that's, that's kind of the, the point of the exercise, I think, in Jim Balvano's mind at the time is, see these things that are in front of you and recognize them and feel that emotion from it. You know, mm -hmm. don't just take it for granted as a guy who was, you know, approaching the end of his life. That was kind of the message he had there. Um, and also your, your, your story there, the ringer saved money on the hotels, which I guess probably made Bill happy. Well, that was Sports Illustrated then. Oh, that so was they saved money the on the hotels. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they that were didn't thrilled. Help them because they still continue <laughs> to lay off people. So exactly. your your time back in your childhood, in your child room, you you should have stayed at the Four Seasons in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, finally, listen, I'm a big Howard Beck fan. So anybody that had that that does that to Howard Beck, I am not. I'm not happy. About Amen. That. Amen. Um, and uh, and a lot of other people. Um, all right. Finally, that you you live right by Barclays Center, so there's that Oculus. You know the Oculus, the video scoreboard, the video um, machine that's outside the front of it. Um, yep. The whole world there can see it. Flatbush in Atlanta, you're coming out of the subway. Everybody going to that arena. If you could put a message up there, it's the think part. If you could put a message up there for everybody to think about, what do you think that might be? I think one of the most important words just. As a person now and as I get older, I wish was more appreciated as empathy. I wish people showed others more empathy, were more understanding, 
Um, we're willing to listen. We're willing to learn about others and their situations before judging and speaking. And just like be empathetic would probably be what I would love to just have up there. Going like, back to, yeah, goes back to what we were talking about, about covering players and the human beings that are playing these games. 100%. And I think uh, the word empathy is like at the core of being a really good person. And uh, I wish more people practiced it and it doesn't hurt you to be empathetic. So that's probably what I would, I would have up there instead of I'm looking at it right now and it's a advertisement for a Wu-Tang Nas concert. So I wish that, uh, that was, that would, that would have been my number two actually. Cause I'm really looking forward to that show, but, uh, no, oh, you're, be, lo- you're be, looking at the, you're looking at the Oculus. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. You could see it from where you are. I can. All right. So, yeah. So that's, so be empathetic and check out the Wu-Tang Clan at Barclays Center. <laughs> yes, Those exactly. are the two messages you would have. Uh, those are excellent answers, Michael Pena. I really appreciate you, uh, you being open with us and, uh, and you could read all your stuff in the ringer and it was so great talking to you. Thanks so much. We'll do it again sometime. Thanks so much, Chris. This was fun. All right, my thanks to Michael Pina on TheRinger.com. Check out his article, The Nets Are Ready to Move Forward. Uh, it was a profile piece on Nick Claxton. Um, kudos to Michael for predicting that everything, everywhere, all at once would sweep the Oscars. It did. It won at least seven Academy Awards, including three of the four acting awards. It took home Best Director, and Best Picture. That's the big one, right? Uh, screenplay as well. Uh, so a big night for everything, everywhere, all at once. I, I recommended that as one of the things to watch back on the pod back in, uh, it was like October, November. It was definitely before the, it was before the start of the NBA season. So it was early October. I remember I saw it on a flight out to Los Angeles uh, to do a football game. And I just loved it. But there's the thing about the arts, movies, books, music, and we get into that all the time in the postgame. There's no scoreboard. And I remember, I think it was Eddie Vedder who once famously won a Grammy, basically got up there and said, I don't really know what this means. Like, it's kind of silly to have winners and losers when it comes to art. It's a subjective thing. There's no scoreboard. It's not like sports. You know, a lot of times people will use the analogy of sports as art or players say they're like artists. Well, I mean, there may be creative ways to score, but a basket counts for a certain amount of points and there's a scoreboard. It's not figure skating. You don't get points for originality or degree of difficulty. And I think that's the difference. And to judge art, it's kind of silly in a way. I mean, Listen, I love the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, and it wins Best Picture, and there'll be a point of reference for decades where you could say, all right, that it's a way of comparing it to other films and when it came out. But in reality, I recommend it to people who I respect their opinion and who love the movies who didn't like it. It's a subjective thing. But what it does is it gets the conversation going, right? It enhances the industry. It's like what talk radio or or talking heads on TV do for sports. It promotes the game. 
and it's fun. And it, it, it leads to discussion and debate. And it keeps it in your mindset. And it gives us a way of referencing things. So it's, so it's fun. And I love it. But everything is subjective. I said that, you know, sports have a scoreboard. Movies have a score. And some of the things we take for granted in a film is the, the score. It's kind of the heartbeat of a movie. Um, I, I listened to Mike Breen on the J.J. Reddick podcast recently. Uh, old Man in the Three. And Mike talked about his love of music and especially his love of musical scores. So when I saw him a few days later, I, I, I brought it up and we were talking about it. And he recommended I watch this uh, documentary called Score about the composers who do musical scores. And it was terrific. So I recommend it. I highly recommend it. And my favorite musical score of a film was from a film that won Best Foreign Film many years ago. It's called Cinema Paradiso. And uh, the composer is the now late Ennio Marcone. Um, he, did, he did scores for other films like The Untouchables, uh, Once Upon a Time in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. What a great score that was, right? So that's my, my listening recommendation. So, so watch Score and then check out the score of Cinema Paradiso. And here's another little thing that I like to do sometimes. If you're driving in a car or you're on a plane and you're looking out the window, put on a good musical score. It gives your surroundings and it gives your experience kind of a cinematic feel, which I always think is cool. Thank you very much for listening and subscribing to The Voice of the Nets. Thank you to my producer, Steve Goldberg, engineer Isaac Lee. We'll talk to you again next time. I'm Chris Carino. Thanks so much for listening to The Voice of the Nets. 